0: Listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, recorded at the Studios of Maine Magazine in Portland, Maine. Show summaries are available at doctorlisa.org. Download and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial through iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details. Here are some highlights from this week's program.
1: I think Maine has always been this way. Typically, people in Maine and people outside of Maine, I think, think of Maine as a place where there's a very strong sense of provincialism and and sovereignty, but people were always coming in and out of here, but because of the landscape, it's, it has a quietness that makes it feel like we have belonged here forever
2: or something. Both of those are based on stereotypes that we play around with quite a bit. Our motto is feeding our hungry, empowering our families, healing our planet. And those are the three circles in which we work.
3: It's pulling these women together and not just us training them, but connecting them so that they find other people to bike with, to run with, to do swimming, group swims with. People at their level that they can train with to get to that next level.
0: The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Main Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at REMAX Heritage, Seabags, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Marcy Booth of Booth Financial Services, Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial, Apothecary by Design, and The Body Architect.
4: This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you are listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 62 Community. Airing for the first time on November eighteenth, twenty twelve on WLOB and WPEI Radio, Portland, Maine. Today's show features Maine magazine writer and author Jed Coffin, Craig Lepine, founder of Cultivating Community, and Julie Jordan Marchesi and Andrea Brown of She Jams. We specifically put the community show right in front of Thanksgiving. And we did this because we understand that there are many different ways in which people belong to communities. Author Seth Godin actually refers to these as tribes. And a tribe or a community can be what you're born into, it can be where you work, where you play, or simply built of the people that you love. I have communities built around my own life um, based on where I'm living. I've been in Maine since 1977 but also based on the fact that I'm the oldest of 10 children. I'm a doctor, I'm a writer, and I'm a Facebook picture taker on my early morning runs. And in many different ways, I've created communities that make sense to me, that feel good to me, that nurture me. This Thanksgiving, I'll be spending time with my extended family at Atlantic Hall in Cape Porpoise, right here in Maine. This is something that my family's been doing for many years because we simply have so many darn people involved in this community. But I love it. My nine year br- younger brothers and sisters and I and our, f- our spouses and our families and our significant others, my cousins, my aunts, my uncles, my grandmother, we've all really come to enjoy this regular occasion at Atlantic Hall because we consider it community building time. I'm very fortunate to have a family like this and a family that meets regularly right here in Maine. I hope you enjoy today's show. With Maine magazine writer and author Jed Coffin, who's going to talk about his experience with community and growing up in Brunswick and the work he's done for Maine magazine, including the recent article What is a Mainer? Also Craig Lepine, who's developed a cultivating community presence, working in the environment, working with people, working with education, and doing all kinds of interesting things over the last decade. And finally, Julie Jordan Marcese and Andrea Brown of She Jams who have created a community around exercise and fitness and social outreach and well-being on so many different levels. We hope you enjoy today's show. On today's Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, we're talking about community. And I became interested in discussing this idea with author Jed Coffin, um, because I read about um, an article he had written for Main Magazine, which I'm going to let him tell us about. But I, I think he has a lot of very cogent things, cogent insights about this topic. Thanks for coming in and yeah, having definitely. this conversation. So, real Mainer. Mm. Why did this become an article that Main Magazine wanted you to write?
1: Uh, let's see. I, I think I won't take too much credit for it. I know that um, you know Kevin and Susan and Sophie. Uh, had this idea floating around um, the table for a while, um, you know, and for whatever reason, I, I feel like I I end up um, with the honor or dishonor of of tackling these these kind of philosophical cultural questions um, in my career uh, that are about culture, that are about communities, and that are about how we um, as individuals in living in the same space uh, delineate who we are. So. So I'm not sure you know, why this or last September was the Mainer story, but I know that it was uh, a long time coming. You know that I think there are some, Main is changing so quickly. It's such a dynamic place now. Uh, it's both a, a kind of brand of itself and also um, a sort of faceless, nameless quantity in many ways for the people that live here. So I think every once in a while, you have to step back and, and rearticulate. articulate uh, the world, the, the name that you're going to give a people or a place, just as we might re-examine American culture through literature and, and uh, you know, the arts, uh, I think Maine, on, on its own terms, need to fi- needs to figure out where it's going and who it is and, and ask that question over and over again.
4: Well, that is a little bit um, controversial, I, I would think. And also, you wrote an article about the casinos, mm. which was, I think, somewhat controversial as well. Sure. Do you find a lot of differing opinions when you talk to people as you're creating these articles?
1: Yeah, and I, I think I, um, you know, find different opinions. But I also have a, a, a pretty heightened sense of of what those opinions are going to be before I enter a story. And um, because the media tries to do a pretty good job of laying out those those opinions— the story for me typically is when I go into a, a world um, or a community with uh, a certain set or or lens through which to examine that community and then realize that the opinions I have or the opinions that the media offers are not really even part of the conversation in that community. And that's when you know you're dealing with uh, good material and a real, a real story, you know? Um, t- typically, I think stories in Maine come down to um, financial versus uh, moral uh, uh, polarities. You know, how are we going to keep money in our pockets? How are we going to keep people working um, while at the same time preserving the uh, ethical imperatives that we think are central to who we are as a, as a culture and a state? You know, I know we appreciate our Yankee resourcefulness and, and our um, kind of uh, close to the earth uh, living. But on the other hand, um, we need to 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 put food on our tables, and that comes at a certain cost and sacrifice. So.
4: Your first book, A Chant to Soothe Wild Elephants, was written when you were relatively young.
1: Yeah, uh, it was came out in 2008. I wrote most of it when I was uh, 26 or 27.
4: And this described an experience with a, with a community of a very different sort. Mm. Can you talk about that a little sure.
1: bit? Sure. Um, Well, that community is uh, several hours east of uh, Bangkok, Thailand, in in the village where my mom is from. Uh, She left that village right before or or during the Vietnam War, uh, I think in 1967. met my father, who was a soldier in the Vietnam War, in in 1968. They were in northeastern Thailand together on a military base. Uh, And... um, not long afterward my mother left thailand in her village for good to to be in america at this point she's been in america longer than she was ever alive in thailand which is sort of the tipping point i think for a lot of immigrants um so i 20 years after i was um or 30 years after she came to america when i was 21 i I left college for um several months uh, about the duration of a summer and um went back to her village to be a monk in the local temple, uh, Buddhist temple, the same temple where my grandfather and uncles had been monks. Um, so that community was obviously very different than the community of mid Maine or uh, the community of, my, of Brunswick High School. Um, I was surrounded by a lot of family, uh, but also by a culture where, uh, because of the size of the village and the intimacy of Thai culture, uh, everyone knew all sorts of things about me. Um, I was a religious figure uh, along with about 35 other men who were uh, my age and older. Um, And the community functioned in what I would think of as a much more connected way. Um, At the time, this was in 2001, I don't recall there being internet access anywhere. there was a Dunkin' Donuts and a 7-Eleven, but uh, there was certainly not Facebook or emails or, you know. um, And as a monk, I was really expected to carry a certain spiritual symbolism and uh, positioning in the the community. People would come to me. I was 21 years old after my junior year at Middlebury. You know, I I really felt um, that I was in no position to to be in a, you know purveyor of knowledge but people would come to me and ask me you know how to pick a proper wife and where to invest uh, you know in rice or um you know in a fish market or, or whatever as if i had this access to this important knowledge because of my spiritual practice which was also quite ignorant and, and limited um, so i tried to get that across in the book i think a lot of people thought i set out to write a uh, seven-story mountain you know like a a, um a religious text but it was not that was not my intention
4: when you and i spoke you mentioned that you have um i believe a tradition of healers in your family somebody Mm -hmm. is the equivalent of i don't want to say medicine man because i guess that sounds really maybe I, i don't know but yeah but did that influence your desire to go forward and find find yourself in some way when you yeah. were 21?
1: Well, you know, I had memories. Of, this comes up in the book early on. I had memories of my grandfather um, practicing medicine um, in a very traditional way. You know, I, I remember people coming to the front steps of our little house um, next to the canal and, and rubbing ointments in people's shoulders and um, do um, using moxibustion and such to to heal them. We have a lot of Chinese blood in our, in our family line. So, um, I don't know if it was passed down. I know very little about that past. I have memories and and probably some invented fantasies about how, um, effective that healing was. I remember walking barefoot through the village and cutting my foot open and, and my grandfather like reaching to this top shelf. Um, he didn't speak English. I didn't speak Thai at that time and pulling this really gnarly looking bottle with like a clump of moss in it or something and some liquid and rubbing it all over my foot and then the wound being gone the next day that's a pretty I don't know if anything could do that but like that that's how I remember it you know which says something I suppose uh my mother's a psychiatric nurse which is a you know a, a tough tough job my, my father um is for a time he just retired but for a time was a staff psychologist for the uh National Guard so he was um Working with all the troops who came home uh, from Iraq and Afghanistan uh, back into New England, uh, acclimating them to their their normal lives, um, and my wife is a restorative yoga teacher, so you know I'm pretty well covered. I guess, <laughs> I guess um, in in the the healing department, um, I don't know where my healing work comes, but uh, I'm sure it you know rears its head somehow. So.
4: Well, I've spoken to more than one person who's actually read your book and mm. has found some healing or inspiration yeah, yeah. in that. And I, I think that when you and I had a conversation um, previously, you said that it often seems that for some reason people will still look to you mm. for insight or knowledge or mm. reflection. I mean, that's that's a, that's a heavy something. To yeah. be to have been yeah. holding on to even from your early years.
1: Yeah, yeah I, uh, I think you know it's hard not to talk about this without feeling a little bit self-important but uh, you know I know that um, as a kid, you know I got picked to be the captain of various teams and um, to often um, I think was looked uh, looked to uh, to provide, inspiration or support or stability in difficult times that I went through with a few friends um you know and and part of that is maybe a kind of natural thingness about me but also um I feel like I I like that work you know and I'm willing to have that conversation so so I so I people maybe notice that about me you know I'm sort of a softy, you know, I don't, I'm not, I've done a lot of kind of fighting dangerous stuff, but I am not a confrontational person, you know, and, um, prefer compromise innately to, you know, putting my foot down on, on issues, um, and have always felt, uh, very, um, compelled to move between circles, uh, demographic and, um, Ethnic and racial and whatever that are uh, separated by various gaps. You know, I like you know. As a teenager, I used to hitchhike around a lot, and I just loved like entering people's lives um, that I might not enter in other you know at Middlebury College or at Brunswick High School or you know. And and that was always very exciting to me. So um, sometimes I feel like yeah, it's about healing, but also um, I'm. I like being an interpreter of, of different cultures and different ideas and, and accessing those ideas and bringing them to other people. So that seems to be kind of the origin of a lot of that, that work.
4: Well, you, you aren't willing to maybe put your foot down in some ways, but you did write a book called that's coming out this spring, mm-hmm. Rough House Friday, mm-hmm. that talks about actually fighting yeah in yeah. Alaska. right So right. where does that come from within you?
1: Yeah. Well um, I you know I know that I, I had a handful of fights in, in, in this bar and and then I fought golden gloves in northeast with out of the Portland Boxing Club and um, I definitely like w- was not the kind of fighter that would punch first you know I'd have to get hit first before I could really um, do anything to another person um, but I, I did, I think it has to do with intimacy, you know, and obviously not in a, an erotic way, but intimacy of, of, of kind of um, a spiritual intimacy that you experience with a person you fight. You know, there's really everything falls away, and you're left only with, you know, you and the ring and your opponent and um, all the distinctions that typically separate us. Uh, class and, and, and money and, and identity um, kind of disappear, and you're just left with a, a bare person and a bare soul. And, and I really l- like that experience, and I think I kind of long for that experience in the same way that the writers who I really admired as a, as a younger man and that I still admire now, um, I think they were searching for that uh, ephemeral, ineffable, spiritual kind of intimacy also. You know, I, for this book, I've been reading Into the Wild a lot. Not so much because my book is similar to this book, but or to Into the Wild, but the aims of, of you know, Alexander Supertramp are, you know, um, he he was after something that he couldn't really put his finger on and, and might or might not have been there. But I find myself kind of hunting down that same thing, you know, and, and I find it in other people. I find it in... Um, Cityscapes and you know natural landscapes, um, so yeah, I, I'm not really sure where people have asked me many times. You know, how does the how can you be a monk and a boxer? Because of course you get start to get identified by the books you write. Um, I don't see them very very differently. Typically, I say it's, it both are very ascetic disciplines, so on and so forth. But when it comes down to it, I think it's about intimacy and stripping away all the things that separate us as individuals um, from And I kind of put this in quotes from really who we really are, you know, and and that, uh, you know, I could say soul, but that seems like a problematic term too. Anyway.
0: A chronic ache, sleepless nights, a feeling of something being not quite right. You can treat the symptoms with traditional medications and feel better for a little while and continue on with your busy days. But have you ever stopped to consider the what? that's at the core of a health issue? Most times it goes much deeper than you think and when you don't treat the root cause, the aches, sleeplessness, and that not-quite-right feeling come back. But they don't have to. You can take a step towards a healthier, more centered life. Schedule an appointment with Dr. Lisa Belial and discover how a practice that combines traditional medicine with Eastern healing practices can put you on the right path to better living. For more information, please call The Body Architect in Portland at 207-774-2196 or visit doctorlisa.org today. Healthy living is a journey. Take the first step. This segment of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is brought to you by the following generous sponsors. Mike LePage and Beth Franklin of RE-MAX Heritage in Yarmouth, Maine. Honesty and integrity can take you home. With Remax Heritage, it's your move. Learn more at rheritage.com.
4: Here on the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and podcast, we've long recognized the link between health and wealth. Here to speak more on the topic is Tom Shepard of Shepard Financial.
1: This morning, my wife and thousands of others from the running community are lined up at the start of the Philadelphia Marathon. Me and friends from my lacrosse community are set to face off against each other at the rack over in Westbrook. Many of us work hard in one community and play hard in another to keep connected to our passion for life. We do well at work and play. But how well is our pursuit of health and money connected to our need to build wealth in ourselves and in our communities? If you're interested in learning more about how financial planning can inform your game or looking to use your game to motivate you to a better relationship to money, give us a call at Shepherd Financial, 847-4032. Your community of friends may thank you someday for stepping up to the line and sharing your gifts. Let us help you evolve with your money.
0: Shepherd Financial. Securities and advisory offered through LPL Financial. Member FINRA. S-I-P-C. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines carefully prepared by experienced professionals coupled with care and attention focused on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individualized care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way it was meant to be.
4: It seems interesting that in Maine, and my family is from Maine, I've lived in Maine a long time, went away, came back seemed interesting that we've, we've had this military presence in Maine that sort of brought people from away to places like Brunswick. Yeah, And you experienced this, I imagine, as yeah. a Brunswick High School student, because that was before the base actually kind of closed down.
5: Sure, sure.
4: Do you think that that had an impact on the culture of that particular town and maybe other towns like it in Maine?
1: Uh, yeah, definitely. I, I loved h- hanging out with the, the Navy kids because you know, they were like um, it would be January you know and we'd be in the middle of basketball season and then some kid with a southern accent would show up who grew up in you know um, Alabama or something and and out of nowhere it was like we were this imported culture came into our little community Um, you know and I I remember um, going into base housing to play pickup basketball games against the Navy kids and uh, and and they were here for a year and a half, or for the length of a deployment, and then gone. You know, and and I won't say that Brunswick was like a, a flourishing um, crockpot of culture or anything like that, but I I do know that uh, it made me aware of um, other other uh, ways of being that was was good to I don't think it like made me deeply empathetic or respectful or tolerant or anything but it kept my head out of the fog just enough to to remind me that there are other ways to do it you know I had this pen pal named Johnny Finley for a long time we were best friends his his mom was Filipina and I don't know maybe that we connected some way culturally but we were quite young and then he moved and then for like six years we used, I used to get um, letters from San Diego, FPO San Diego, you know, and, and, uh, and that was cool. You know, I I don't know what Johnny Finley's up to now, but, um, I still remember the day he left, you know, and our tearful goodbye when we were in second grade and, and, uh, and that's neat. You know, I think Maine has always been this way. Typically people in Maine and people outside of Maine, I think, think of Maine as a place where, um, there's a a sort of not indigenous, but very strong sense of provincialism and, and sovereignty, but, um, Maine's always historically been a dynamic, you know, the, this was the first stopping point, you know, and then the exploration of the New World, you know, and there was fish markets and, and the beaver trade, and, and um, people were always coming in and out of here, but because of the landscape, it's, it has a quietness that makes it feel like we um, have belonged here forever or something, and, and both of those are based on, on, on stereotypes that we play around with quite a bit.
4: You have one book out? A yep. Chant to Soothe Wild Elephants, which I would recommend to our listeners. If they haven't already read it, they should read it. Great. You have another one coming out this spring, Rough House Friday. Mm-hmm. What else is on the horizon for you?
1: Uh, geez, I don't know. I think I'm going to keep writing. I'm trying to structure my life now professionally so that I will never um, do anything but write until lunchtime. So, you know, I, I do things like trying to check my email between 5 p.m. and noon so that I, I have a, a precious little pure brain to, to do my writing work um, I, I have some book ideas that I'd, I'd like to, to undertake that won't require much research or well will, will require research but not much travel I've got a book idea about that would um, take place up in the Mekong Delta in Thailand that I'd probably drag my my girls up out to Thailand to to live in some village for a while. I don't know, we'll have to run that by my wife. But, um, and then I'm not sure what's next. I, I like the work I do now. I, I teach a little bit and I, um, you know, do a lot of uh, carpentry type work off and on. Um, but I have a sense that something is shifting. I know all the people that I really admire are um, civic leaders in some way. And I don't think I admire them uh, without some kind of intention buried beneath that admiration. So it doesn't mean that I'm announcing my, you know, my my uh, entrance into the, the next gubernatorial election, but um, it might not be politics, it might not be anything explicit, but I, I do feel myself called to um, the kind of statesman period of my life. You know, I'm, I've done a lot of hiding out and lurking in the shadows, and now I've, I feel like I've, I've got there's there's some opportunity um, in the world, you know, as opposed to on the fringes. Of it. So,
4: how can people find out more about your books or the work you're doing?
1: Uh, I've got a website, and I think at this point, if you Google my name, all the dirt is there. So, um, and uh, on my website, there's also an email address, and I I always make this offer to. To, to audiences big and small that I meet with, that feel free to email me. You know, I, I get, I always say that, and I remember I spoke in front of I don't know about a thousand people at Florida International University a year and a half ago, and and I thought, okay, these are all college kids. Maybe I'll get, you know, um, five or six emails. And I think I got three. So, uh, so I, I love to hear from people, and and it's 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 not a, not a problem to to be in touch. I really enjoy that element of my work. If if that wasn't there. I don't know what would be in it, what would be in it for me um, ultimately. so
4: Well, thank you. We've been speaking with Jed Coffin, author and contributor to Maine Magazine, and also I don't think we mentioned this, but teacher at the Stone Coast um, MFA program. Mm-hmm. So we're really grateful that you came in to talk to us about community on this um, pre-Thanksgiving show.
1: Great, thanks for having me.
0: We'll return to our program after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. The Body Architect was founded on the belief that mindful exercise improves the health of the mind, body, and spirit. Housed in an open, light-filled space in Portland, Maine, The Body Architect offers a cutting-edge fitness center, expert personal trainers, nutrition counseling, and a full class schedule. Visit thebodyarchitect.com Or call 207-774-2196 and get started with the body architect today. And by Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists in Falmouth, Maine. At Orthopedic Specialists, ultrasound technology is taken to the highest degree. With state-of-the-art ultrasound equipment, small areas of tendinitis, muscle tears, ligaments, instability, and arthritic conditions can be easily found during examination. For more information, visit orthocareme.com or call 207-781-9077.
4: Today's Thanksgiving show is all about community because we know that various people around the state are um, getting together in groups with their families and communities. And we thought it would be an important day to introduce Craig Lapine from Cultivating Community to talk on this very subject. Thanks for coming in.
2: Thanks for having me.
4: Now Cultivating Community is something that grew out of multiple different interests of yours. Talk to me about that.
2: Well, I was a school teacher and I was interested in food and growing food as a way to get youth connected with the land and the sources that sustain us all here. biological, social, spiritual, how we're all rooted. Um, So that was one impulse. Um, I'm very interested in issues of social justice and um, hunger is one of the more visible uh, examples of unfairness in our world. Um, And so working on that that issue. and, and just food's capacity to bring people together and create community. Um, you know, as an environmentalist, um, I think a lot of the challenges that we face can be a little daunting um, when you think about our challenges around energy and housing and things like that. Um, the thing about the food piece of that conversation is that um, a local and sustainable food system is actually more joyful and more tasty and <laughs> more nutritious. Um, and so it's a solution that, that works for us as a species that also doesn't actually mean any loss. There's a lot of, um, you know, just a lot of gifts in that path.
4: Now, before I ask you a little bit more about cultivating community, it, it was interesting when I connected with you about cultivating community, you wrote me back and you said, I think I knew your brother. So you and I already had a community connection. You taught my brother ninth grade right. English That's, at Yarmouth High School.
2: That is correct, yeah.
4: Quite a few years ago now, <laughs> Yeah, my brother Brian. Um, is this something that you find in Maine is that community connections are already in existence and it's something that strengthening um is really been a function that you've engaged in
2: i i have found that and i am um you know i'm new to this i've only lived in maine for 14 years so i'm kind of a newcomer by a lot of standards Um, but yes i think maine is a wonderfully close-knit place um, where people are yeah people are connected people are looking out for each other um I really appreciate, especially compared to some other places that I've lived, um, just what that instills in terms of the the civility and the depth of the conversation, you know, um, because you know you're going to be in relationship with people for a long time, and, and so people I think are very good about not burning bridges and really trying to get to solutions that work, um, and I have the... Um I, I'm fortunate to be at a lot of tables around the state and in different conversations where people from very, very different backgrounds, I mean, if you can imagine sort of fishermen and people who regulate fisheries or farmers that want to farm in a certain way and farmers that want to farm in a very different way, and, and those coming into conflict, and people um, by and large, even though they may differ profoundly on a on a philosophical level, um, can still be respectful and try to move the conversation forward. And I really value that about this place.
4: So, what is cultivating community? What are the different aspects of this organization that you've been putting your heart and soul in for more than a decade now?
2: Yeah. Um, well, our our motto is. Um, Feeding our hungry, empowering our families, healing our planet, and so if you can think of those three, those three as circles. One is about um, community food security. One is about community empowerment. One is about community sustainability, and those are the three circles in which we work. Um, and agriculture and food systems is the through piece for all of those. So. Right now, what that looks like is um, our community food security, our anti-hunger work, is mostly uh, built around a farmer's market and farm stand initiative, where we're trying to bring literally create access points for people that may not have a lot of resources to get fresh local produce. And um, they can use, if they're receiving federal nutrition benefits, to put food on the table, which. One in four main families are. Um, they can use those benefits in the you know at those farm stands at those farmers markets that we're partnering with. Um, we also have a free and sliding scale CSA and and an elder share program. So, so we're trying to get food out to people in ways that work for them and also work for farmers because that's an important part and that sort of jumps us to the next circle, which is the community empowerment piece. Um, even though we have a lot of hungry people in this state and and a lot of people for whom uh, food is out of reach. Um, the other part of the conversation, which sometimes can be awkward to engage when we, we have that state, is that uh, we people now pay historically low percentages of their family budget for food. Um, And I happen to think people actually should be paying more for food and less for the kinds of stuff that I think we can all agree is kind of killing us and the planet. Um, And if we did that, you know, one of the things about people paying historically low percentages of their income for food is that it's very, very hard to make a living as a farmer. So on the one hand, we have all these hungry people. We're trying to create pathways for them to be able to access healthy food. Um, On the other hand, we want, we're trying to support farmers and we run a in particular a refugee farmer training program so people trying to build businesses around farming and it's really important for farmers to be able to get a fair price for their food um, and there's a whole bunch of conversations around our own food policy and subsidies and things that sort of bundled up in that question and that challenge um, and, and Another piece of our community empowerment work is really, and this is coming from my roots as a teacher, is around youth, and so we run teen programs, um, first jobs programs in the summer called Youth Growers and Grow Interns. We partner with lots and lots of schools that want to use school gardens and uh, food as a way to teach leadership and stewardship. and then that third circle around community sustainability really has to do with the kind of agriculture that we practice and where we practice it. Um, we think cities can produce a lot more of the food. You know, we think we can shorten the distance between you know field and table, and that helps. And then just the way that you know one treats the land so that you're putting back as much as you're taking out. All of those pieces work together. We hope.
4: If people who are listening have an interest in getting involved in Cultivating Community, what types of things are available that they might be able to help you with, and how can they find out more?
2: Well, they should certainly start by going to the website, cultivatingcommunity.org, and there's a little box on the front page of the website that says, uh, I think it says, receive our newsletter, and if you just put your email in there, um, you'll get and and I promise we don't send out a lot of emails. You won't get you know you don't get buried in, in spam. But you'll find out what we're doing, and that includes volunteer opportunities. Um, there's a there's a you know as with any organization we have a range of needs. Um, there's really kind of hands on stuff, and that is obviously heavier during the growing season. So this is the Thanksgiving show, our 2012 growing season. Is pretty much put to bed at this point. But starting in February, um, when the greenhouses start up, and then in April, when we get outside, you know, we've got a lot of work to do and we welcome individuals, families, large groups to come and, and help us do that. Um, and then we also have organizational needs, you know, and at, like any nonprofit, we're always, you know, somewhat under resourced. So, um, you know, we just get a lot of help on lots of things, communications, um, outreach. Um, you know, uh, another thing, another thing that people could definitely do, and they would get notice in the spring if, if this was a the way they wanted to get involved is if they could just, if they wanted to buy, uh, a community supported agriculture share, um, from one of, uh, the refugee farmers in our program, um, that's a huge benefit to the work that we're trying to do. Um, Those farmers market collectively under the banner of Fresh Start Farm. So, that would encourage people to buy a Fresh Start Farm CSA. Visit one of our neighborhood farm stands in the spring when we open back up. Um, Maybe volunteer to help out with one of our school gardens. Um, We're always looking for volunteers, and we do a, a pretty interesting volunteer training if you wanna spend a day and kinda of get certified as a school garden uh, you know, implementer. Uh, so there are lots of ways to plug in.
4: And can people also donate money?
2: People can always donate money, yes, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and that's super easy. Um, there's, a, there's a donate now button on our website. Um, if you'd rather write a check, you can see how that, you can go to the website again, cultivatingcommunity.org and all that information is there. Yes,
4: and you have a Facebook page too.
2: We do. We actually have. We actually have two. We've got an organizational one, and if you're particularly interested in our youth programs, cultivating community youth programs, has a web has a Facebook page as well.
4: One final question: Why do you think this notion of community has become so much more important of late? Hmm. Uh,
2: I guess what I would say is I think we're um, we're in the middle of an interesting transition um, you know where we we went from a world of uh, lots of kind of independent local communities um, through a phase where there was this huge, integration and um, homogenization, I guess, where, um, you know, the sort of slightly monolithic uh, consumer-based, I would say, American culture emerged. And and there have always been doubters and naysayers in that, um, and people who, you know, have paved the groundwork for for what's happening now, where I say we're sort of rediscovering the opportunity for lots and lots of interconnected, um, but still uh, local and largely self-sufficient economies and communities. Um, I think that that's where, um, so all of the new communications technology allows that interconnectedness, but people, I think, are rediscovering the value, and in some cases the necessity of having really strong local communities as well that are you know that are working together and fairly and 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 all that
4: well i appreciate all the work you're doing to create community and to build on the community that we've had here in our great state of maine so thank you for coming in and talking to us we've been talking with craig Lepine from cultivating community
2: thank you We'll
0: return to our interview after acknowledging the following generous sponsors. Using recycled sails collected from sailors and sailing communities around the world, Seabags designs and manufactures bags, totes, and accessories in Maine on Portland's working waterfront. From the best-selling classic, Navy Anchor Tote, to fresh new designs, Seabags offers retired sails another life by turning them into handmade, one-of-a-kind, nautical-inspired pieces. Visit the Seabags store in Portland or Freeport, or go to www.seabags.com to browse their unique collection. And by Booth, Accounting and Business Management Services, Payroll and Bookkeeping, Business is done better with Booth. Go to boothmain.com for more information.
4: As we get ready to um, head into Thanksgiving, I think a lot about families because, of course, those are our primary communities. But I also think about other groups that make up communities. Um, and one of these groups I know is very active in the Portland area community, and this is the She Jams um, organization. Now. We had Julie Jordan Marchese come on and speak with us very early on in the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour last fall talking about Try for a Cure. So thanks for coming back and being part of our conversation again today, Thank Julie. you for having me back. And we also have um, Andrea Brown um, representing SheJams, and she's... She's got her own really impressive set of credentials, including being um, a coach and doing multiple triathlons and Director of Recruiting Services at ProSearch. So thanks for coming in and also being here with us. I'm excited to be here, thank you. So first of all, she jams. What is it and why did you call it that?
3: Well, the name is actually uh, was interesting because we spent a lot of time trying to come up with something that captured the idea of pulling women together um, and being active that had some excitement to it. And um, and there's a lot of there's a lot of organizations out there who have claims to names. And we really came down to Julie, Andrea and Melissa jam. She jams. <laughs> so, <laughs> so there's a little um, it. It fits what we were trying to accomplish with the jams, she jams, but um, the, the, names, the names came together on that. Well, I like it. So you're missing, you're
4: missing the third member of your jam at this point.
5: You're the miss- fourth. Yeah, Corinne. Well, okay. she came in after, so we're okay. going to rename her at okay. some point with we were an S. We are going to add
3: a saint before the, her <laughs> last na- the end of her last name, so we had an S. <laughs> I see. Okay. All right. Well, so tell me,
4: what is she jams? What do you do? And why does it represent a community of sorts?
5: Well, cheer jams is a group of women um, coming together with a common goal, and usually our goal is to train together. But we're much more than that. We do a lot of community outreach. It's a social networking um, club where we share ideas and and what each other does, and um, so it's it's just really a. a a group of women that like to get together and uh, do things together in a social and non-competitive atmosphere. And so we do a lot of cool things like volunteering and um, we put on races and uh, we do all sorts of things in the community. And what are you training for? Well, right now, we train for all sorts of different things, but I think it started with Try for a Cure, and um, we felt that uh, Try for a Cure is a real bonding moment for women, so we felt that uh, maybe leading up to the triathlon, it might be an opportunity for women to bond more training together. Um, and. So now we do a multitude of things. Try for a cure. It might be the main marathon. It could be your first five k. It could be swimming peaks to Portland. It could be anything. Um, some people just join to be part of the social atmosphere of of what we do, and um, so it's it's you could join for all sorts of reasons. I should back up and. Um and just ask for—I know
4: anybody who's been listening—and I know, of course, everybody has listened to every single episode of this show, so they know what try for a cure is. But let's just pretend um, that they—they they don't know what try for a cure is. We mentioned this on our recent. Um Breast Health Show when mm-hmm. uh, Meredith Strangberg just came in and the Maine Cancer Foundation, but just just a little back, background on that.
5: Sure, Try for a Cure is an all-women's triathlon that is put on by Maine Cancer Foundation, and um, triathlon is swimming one-third of a mile, biking 15 miles, and then running a 5K at the end, which is 3.1 miles. Um, each woman is required to raise $350. Um, collectively, over the years, we're now the race. Last year, raised $1.2 million. I think it's definitely one of the largest fundraisers in the state. Um, Maine Cancer Foundation is a really cool organization. It's from Maine. It puts us all its money back into Maine uh, for cancer research and patient, patient support right here. So. It, it does really good things for the people of Maine and you know cancer is one of the leading um, diseases that we have here so it, it benefits us all by getting together and doing a race of the sort but you know the race over the year has become very popular um, it's very difficult to get in um... because we can only allow so many so people talk about it a lot um... they want to do it there's you know i think we've probably attracted over the years over five thousand different women have done it and each year there's always somebody new that's doing it for the first time so um, it's quite a, it's, it's the race to be in if, if you're a woman, so, and you can participate, I mean even men can volunteer and donate, so we get a lot of people involved in such a, a great cause. And Maine Magazine, who happens to be a
4: sponsor of the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour, is also a sponsor of Try For A Cure.
5: They certainly are, not just Try For A Cure, but Maine Cancer Foundation in general, they support the organization all year round, which is really a nice partnership.
3: I was going to add part of She jams coming together. What is to, in the tri for the care? I think this year we were talking earlier. Eighty percent of the women who had signed up had never done it, um, and for a woman to say, "Hey, I'm going to do this triathlon," they get all excited. Their friends get all excited, and then they realize, "Oh my gosh, I've got to learn how to swim, bike, and run, and put all three together. How do I do that?" And that was part of putting she jams together was taking those beginning athletes, those women who maybe had done one segment of a triathlon or maybe none, and giving them the confidence and the skills and the training to be able to complete it and complete it safely and have people that they can train with. Because it's intimidating to walk into a bike store and, you know, you've got these $8,000 bikes hanging off the ceiling and you're thinking, okay, so I want to spend about $600 and I just want to ride this and I want, you know, what does that mean? So it's, we've partnered up with the bike shops. They, we do workshops or socials on them where we teach them how to maintain their bikes and it's pulling these women together and, and, not just us training them, but connecting them so that they find other people to bike with, to run with, to do swimming, group swims with. People at their level um, that, that they can train with to get to that next level. How long have you been in existence? We just completed our third triathlon training season. So we started in March of 2010. 2010. And how long? I mean, how many women have you actually worked with?
5: And is, is it all women? It's all women, and, and I think we have had um, over 200 members, 225 members over the last three years. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, we have some women that come to be a member because we have great discounts on wetsuits. So,
3: because
5: <laughs> 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 um, we've partnered with uh, national companies that will give us discounts because our group is so large. Um, and we do have a great group. I mean, a large group of women, and um, it's overwhelming at times to go to places like Try for a Cure and see us in our uniforms. But not only are we racing, we're volunteering. We're doing lots of things, um, and it's it's not just race focused. So. You know, we actually put on a flash mob this year at the beginning of Try for a Cure, which was a real hit. Um, It really started the race off in a really upbeat... Good um, energy. Yeah, really good energy, and, and I think, you know, people enjoyed that. So we do some really fun stuff.
4: What about when someone gets injured and isn't able to be a part of this group, at least from a training standpoint? Are you able to support that
5: person and include them in other ways? Sure. All the races that we do, we're a part in more than just racing. So, um, you know, they can volunteer on the course. They can come and, um, you know, help us with administrative work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They can be a volunteer coordinator for our volunteer jobs that we do out in the community. So we have lots of ways. We, We don't...
3: You don't have many women that get
5: hurt, thank no. gosh. <laughs> I'm
3: knocking on wood here.
5: <laughs> yeah, um, but there are times where people have to, you know, stop for a while um, and then they come back. So, you know, thank gosh they're not hurt.
4: Well, I was thinking also not maybe just in your, but maybe people who aren't able to jump in and do a triathlon right away for whatever reason. Or maybe they have some other physical something that's kind of holding them back from completely doing the training piece of it.
3: I think part of it is being part of the community, whether you're, whether you're racing something or you're there being a part of it. I know we um, had our own she jams try as part of the rev 3 race um, this August, and we had a lot of women do a relay, but we had a lot of women just down there cheering. I think we were the biggest consolidated group cheering, and we weren't just cheering for our women. We were cheering for every single athlete. Who came through? Whether they were the pros coming through, or you know, the the person who's biking 10 miles an hour, and they're just doing this. And and it was really it was really inspiring to see all these people pull together. You know, be there really early, really early on a Sunday morning, and and cheering for this whole group and community and people who had come from all over the place. Um, I think we made. It, again it just comes down to you're encouraging all those other people in the community whether you're racing or not racing you're you' you're connected
5: yeah with each one of our races like when we did a um, partnership with rev3 rev3 happens to be a national um, triathlon company that I would say would compete with what most people hear about Ironman. And um, they gave us 300 community spots in which we had to raise funds. And so we did a really good job of recru- recruiting women um, that had to raise money. So at that particular race, we were the community um, funded. Part of the race, and we raised oh, $12,000 for our, uh, Maine Cancer Foundation, which was really great. Um, now we're taking it back to our members, and we're going to allow them to come up with um, Nonprofits that they want to support and vote on and so it'll be interesting this year um, what their passions are for um, nonprofits, and then you know we'll choose from the top and decide who will support with different races so each one of our races does have a fundraising component mm-hmm. and um, so what we do always is giving back and to our communities and we try to keep everything local which is really nice.
3: How do people find out about she jams. Word of mouth, I think, for the most part, or or just seeing us out there. You know, again, if we're at any kind of event, there's a lot of pink, a lot of pink going on. It's a lot of noise. <laughs> there's a lot of noise. There's Yeah, there's a lot of cheering. There's a lot of... Nobody's out there alone if they're part of our group. And do you have a Facebook page or a website? Mm -hmm. We have a Facebook page, She Jams, um,
5: and then we have a website, www.shejams.com. And on there, it talks about um, opportunities to join us, why you would join us, the races that we do. and The um, programs that we run. So it sounds like if somebody has questions, they can either see
4: one of your members... In the crowd, or Mm -hmm. they can go to your website or your Facebook page and Mm -hmm. connect that way and maybe figure out what might be the best option in terms of being part of your community.
5: Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, that's the wonderful thing about being all women. Women talk, and if they have a good (laughs) experience, they talk about their good experience. And so I think we've been really successful at, you know, most of our members bring in friends and um, say that you have to be part of this, you know, this club. It's great. And... uh, so word of mouth has worked well for us along with our Facebook pages and things like that. so
3: And we have a really central core group of women who have been with us from the beginning and it's it's and it's really cool to see how they've developed and changed um, physically, socially, um, with the support, just the, the feeling of connectivity. Um, it's very tangible. so
4: well, um we've been speaking with Andrea Brown and Julie Jordan Marchese from She Jamps. I really appreciate your coming in and telling me about your group and spending some time with me today.
3: Thank you for having us. Yes, absolutely. Thank you.
4: This is Dr. Lisa Belial, and you have been listening to the Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast, show number 62, community. Airing for the first time on November 18, 2012, on WLOB and WPEI Radio, Portland, Maine. Our guests today have included Maine magazine writer and author Jed Coffin, Craig Lepine, founder of Cultivating Community, and Julie Jordan Marchese and Andrea Brown of She Jams. For more information on our guests, go to doctorlisa.org. For more information on upcoming guests, our blog, or what's going on in our wellness world, visit our Facebook page and like us under Dr. Lisa. Also, be sure to put us on your feeds so that we show up on a regular basis. We hope that you support the sponsors who make this show possible, and we wish all of our American listeners a very happiest of Thanksgivings. We are grateful to have you. We give thanks for you on a regular basis, and we give thanks for the families and communities that support you. This is Dr. Lisa Belial, thanking my family and my community. May you have a bountiful life.
0: The Dr. Lisa Radio Hour and Podcast is made possible with the support of the following generous sponsors. Maine Magazine, Mike LePage and Beth Franklin at REMAX Heritage, Seabags, Dr. John Herzog of Orthopedic Specialists, Marcy Booth of Booth Financial Services, Tom Shepard of Shepherd Financial, apothecary by design and the body architect the dr lisa radio hour and podcast is recorded in downtown portland at the offices of maine magazine on 75 market street it is produced by kevin thomas and dr lisa Belial. audio production and original music by john c mccain for more information on our hosts production team Main magazine or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at doctorlisa.org. Download and become a podcast subscriber of Dr. Lisa Belial through iTunes. See the Dr. Lisa website or Facebook page for details.